I've told you uh, several times that I can pretty much sum up the entire Old Testament in about a minute. Um, I think it would be fair to say that from about Exodus chapter 13, somewhere in there, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament is the same repeating cycle over and over and over again. It's this. God blesses his people abundantly, richly, not just physically, but spiritually. He pours out his love on them, not because they've done anything, not because they've earned it. He pours out his love and his blessings on them because, as he said, he loves them. And they take those blessings and they forget where they came from. And they think to themselves, boy, look what we've done. Look what we've achieved. Look what we've accomplished. Aren't we something? And they forget God. They turn to sin. And then God sends people, judges or prophets. He sends people to them to warn them, to say, guys, you are on the wrong road. You're headed for trouble. You must understand I'm a God of love, but I'm also a God of judgment. I must be. Judgment is coming. Please turn back to me. And the people go, nah, we're good. And so God sends judgment. And the people repent and call out to God. And guess what God does? He forgives them again. And he doesn't just stop there and say, well, fine, now you're, you're going to have to live as a second-class citizen in my kingdom because I'm really miffed at you. You're not getting any more of my blessings. Now, you know what God does? He pours out his blessings on them again. And the cycle starts all over. And so going through the Bible like we're doing in these 40 years that we're taking to get through it, there's a potential for us, now we're in the thick of the Old Testament, in Amos. There's a potential for us as we go through this to feel that repetitiveness and to think, oh, this again? More backsliding by the people, more impending judgment from God? I want to encourage you today not to grow weary of this pattern that we're seeing Because God didn't inspire the Bible to be written just because he was bored. It says these things were written down for our instruction. And we need what we're seeing in the Old Testament. Hey, we need to be reminded of this repetitive cycle that God's people went through. Because you know what? You and I go through it all the time, if we're honest. We'd have to look at our lives and say, boy, Sunday, I am flying high with God. Monday, I'm struggling and I kicked the dog because I was mad. And by Tuesday, I'm cussing at my spouse. I don't mean any of y'all. I'm just saying they're, <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a wild example. Uh, but we all feel the, the weight of this life. If we're living for Christ, we feel that weight. And you reach the point where, uh, as as the Apostle Paul so beautifully confessed at the end of Romans chapter 7, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, "The, the things I don't want to do, I seem to keep on doing. And the things I should do, I, I never seem to do. We can relate, right? And so we come again this morning to, we're going to wrap up the book of Amos today. And we come again to a section of scripture where God is having to get ready to discipline his children. And man, it's just, it's tough reading. But I would suggest to you that there are Tremendous lessons that God has here in these verses for us. If we will just uh, take a moment and um, listen to them. God has been judging his people in this time of Amos, the people of Israel. He's judging them 
for a number of things, but if you could boil it all down to one thing, it would be this. He's judging them for being religious, but not being holy. They wanted religion, but they didn't want the truth. They were busy singing their spiritual songs, but all the while they were ignoring the commands of God to live as holy people, and they were worse, I guess, ignoring God's warnings that judgment is coming. So we pick up in chapter 6. Let's start with Amos 6, 3. We'll just kind of pick up here where we left off and move through these chapters. Amos 6, 3. Woe to you. This is a, it's an old way of saying, man, you better watch out. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who cause the seat of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. That's the, the best of the best there who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls. They've got so much. They're not even doing the stupid swirl thing that wine connoisseurs do. What a snooty bunch that is. They don't know what they're doing, by the way. They're just copying somebody else. None of that means anything who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments. Here comes the perfume and the aftershave, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Now, he's not talking about Joseph specifically, but the house of Joseph. It's a representation of God's people. God is saying to them, pause and look in the mirror for a second. Look at yourselves. You've got everything, and I've given all of this to you, by the way. You have everything anybody could ever want, and you're busy in all of your religious practices singing your songs. I love the way idly singing your songs. They're disconnected from it. They're going through all the rigmarole, and yet your hearts are not even grieved for what has happened to my people. The sin here is not having and enjoying things. The sin here is the self-indulgent excess of the people. While they sit around watching the demise of the nation, and yet they're too comfortable to care. They're safe and secure. They're insulated from the miseries of the poor. They're lining their pockets through backroom deals we've seen in earlier chapters while they're surrounded by abject poverty. Society around them is falling apart. And what are they doing? Nothing. I'm sure we can't draw any parallels to our society today where we see even leaders who are intentionally, willingly bringing pain and devastation to millions of people by doing what they're doing to the economy and to our borders. They're slowly destroying this country on purpose, all the while lining their pockets through backroom deals, rich and fat. They're doing nothing to stop it. Not much has changed in human history. So God goes on in the next several chapters to describe what all this is going to lead to. Let's pick up in Amos chapter 7, verse 1. I'm not going to read these verses, but in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, God sends a plague of locusts to destroy the crops, very reminiscent of what we saw in Joel. It's a plague so severe that the, the people are reduced to eating grass, it says. Would you not think that would humble you? 
Well, Amos cries out for mercy, we're told, and verse 3 says that God relented. And then next, in verses 4 through 6, God sends fire, a fire so severe it consumes everything. But again, Amos prayed for mercy, and what does God do? Verse 6 says, God relented. But even after all this, the people still had not returned to God, and they still had not aligned themselves with his truth, with his commands. And so God uses an interesting illustration in verses 7 through 9. Look at this. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. In other words, I won't ignore this anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Now, you, if, if any of you have done construction, you know what a plumb line is. It's a string with a weight on the bottom, which when held still, just because of the forces of nature God has put in place, much like uh, the bubble in the water in a level, the simplest tools are sometimes still the most accurate. Uh, the, the plumb line will, will give you a perfectly vertical um, template by which to build a wall, for example. You can make sure that it's straight. If you measure your activity as a builder, your steps, if you measure it against that plumb line, you'll know for sure that you're straight. And what God is saying here to his people is, you guys are doing all the religious stuff You think you're doing well, but you're measuring yourselves against the wrong standard. God is saying, I'm coming now, I'm standing in your midst, and I'm going to hold my plumb line, and you're going to have to come and align yourselves with that and see how you stack up. See, these people had fallen into a trap that is not so ancient, actually. You and I can fall into this today They were assessing their godliness against the wrong standard. They were saying, hey, look how successful we are. God is obviously blessing us. Look at all the religious activity we're involved in. We worship, we sing songs, we meet together, we pray. So obviously, we're really good people. But I can never read this section about the plumb line without thinking of Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. The words God spoke to the church in Laodicea, he said, listen to, th- listen to this. You say, in other words, this is your view of how you're doing. You say, I am rich. I become wealthy and have need of nothing. But you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, Poor, blind, and naked. Wow. What a jolting condemnation. You see how easy it is for us to look at our lives, to look at what we're doing, how we're living, and think, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I'm not... As we drive down the street, I'm not that guy in the gutter there. You see, if if we measure ourselves against the man in the gutter, or the drug addict, or the prostitute, or something maybe closer to home, oh, that guy at work who always cheats on his expense reports, I'm not him, or that one who left his spouse, I've never done that. You see, what we're doing is we're using those things as the plumb line for our life to assess how godly we are. God says, man, you are, you're miles off. Come over here. Come here. Here's my plumb line of holiness. Come see how you stack up against this. 
You understand? As soon as we measure ourselves against the right standard, we realize how miserably short we all fall. And boy, it ought to send us running to God's grace. Saying, God, I, on my best day, on my best day as a Christian, I miss you by 100 miles. God, I don't mean to. See, this is, the, this is the tough thing. We can honestly say, Lord, I don't mean to do this. I don't want to live this way. I want to be holy. I want to live for you. But as Paul said, this is a struggle I'm going to have until I die. Get used to it. You will not reach a, 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 a sort of a, a, a level of um, super holiness in this life like the... Um, the Scientologists believe, you know, you, you kind of work your way up the pegboard. No, we, we will see growth in our life. Hopefully we'll see that we're more mature in Christ now than we were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. We can all see that. But we'll never reach a point where temptation is gone, fear is gone, worry, sin. It's never going to go away as long as we're in this flesh. So can I just ask you, what, what yardstick do you use to determine what makes you acceptable in God's sight? God says we'd better never forget that he's the one holding the plumb line. It's his holiness that sets the standard we're measured by. And that's why we'd better be found in Christ. Because on that judgment day... Thank God, those who are in Christ will not have to stand on their own merit. God will look at us, and all he will see is the righteousness of Christ, because we are hidden in him. It'll be like showing up at the ritziest dinner event of the year. Only the elite of the elite are invited and you show up at the door and go, hey, I'd, I'd like to come in. The guy's like, yeah, I bet you would. <laughs> and as he's about to turn you away, uh, some powerful, influential person comes walking up and goes, hey, Phil, it's great to see you. I'm glad you're here. Sorry I'm a little late. Come on in. And the guy at the door is like, whoa. <laughs> I didn't know you were with him. You see, and it's his status that allows us to get in. Same thing in heaven. You stand at the door of heaven, so to speak, and say, Lord, look at all the good things I've done for you. Oh, we're in trouble. But if we say, um, I'm with him, then we can go in on his righteousness. Because on that day, God will, will measure our holiness. He will measure our godliness against the perfect righteousness of Christ. I encourage you to make sure you are in Christ today. If you're not, I just say kindly to you, you don't have a prayer of a chance when this life is over. Well, the rest of chapter 7 tells of a man named Amaziah, not the one we saw earlier, who was a priest in Israel, specifically in Bethel. But watch this, even though he was serving in the Lord's work, even though he was a leader in the Lord's work, working as a priest, he was a very ungodly man who actually stood in defiance of God's word. Hey, everybody who stands in a pulpit, everybody who puts on a robe or whatever on Sundays, you know what that means? Nothing, including this pulpit. It means nothing. There are lots of charlatans, lots of frauds out there. And I've asked you a million times, don't just take what I say to you. Check out what I say to you. Take what I say to the word of God and go, I want to make sure this joker's telling us the truth because I might be lying to you. Do you know? Verse 10 of chapter 7, then... Now, 
picture this. Amos has been there prophesying, laying all these heavy things on the people day after day after day. Then, there's a lot in that word then. After all this, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Lie. The land is not able to bear all his words, for thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Verse 12, then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. Boy, there's so much packed in here. Here we have a showdown between a religious man and a godly man. Amaziah was the priest, it says in verse 10. He was the priest of Bethel. He was the top man, the archbishop, the chairman of the church committee, so to speak, He not only has an impressive title, but he has powerful connections. He just sends off a personal note to King Jeroboam, trying to get Amos silenced. And then that's not enough for him. So he confronts Amos face to face. And in a rather patronizing tone, he calls him a seer. Um, It's an old word. It literally means a seer, one who sees. Um, Amaziah is not willing to sort of give him the title of being a true prophet. He says, hey, you seer, like second-class prophet. He says, uh, go back to where you came from. You remember on our first Sunday in Amos, you don't remember that at all. It's been a long time ago. I barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday. Uh, Anyway, we saw that um, Amos had come from the southern kingdom of Judah. God had sent him, said, go north to all of those nations. Kind of we drew that target. He went to all the nations, and then he zeroed in in the middle on Israel. And he said, deliver my prophecy to my people there in Israel. So Amos is a foreigner. You understand? Um, he's, uh, he's an Alabama boy in New York City. He's out of place. Amaziah says to him, "Uh, go back to where you came from, boy. You don't belong around here. And, And don't miss what he said in verse 13. Look at it again. But never again prophesy at Bethel. That was sort of the religious hub there in in that area. They were worshiping false gods there and calling it the worship of the true God. Never again prophesy at Bethel. Why? Watch this. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. He's saying, God may be ruler and king where you come from, but that's not how we do things here. We've elected a man to be the top dog here. This is the king's domain. Understand, I mentioned... Uh, Last week or recently, again, Genesis tells us that God is the creator of all things. This whole universe is his domain. He is king of it all. All these other rulers that are set up who think they're such big shots, they're like ants in the universe in God's sight. And you see the danger here. My mind can't help but go all the way back to 1 Samuel when the people of God said, we're tired of following the commands of God. Give us a king. Give us a king, a man who will rule over us instead of God. And God said, oh, you don't want that. They said, nope, we want to be what? Just like the other nations. That's a quote. God said, okay, I'll give you a king. But he said, I am your only king. I'll give you what you want, but don't forget, I'm your only king. And he warned them. He said, by doing this, you are 
uh, if I can just put it in common terms, you're, you're setting yourselves up for a world of hurt. And boy, it didn't take them long to find out that that was true. You see, here's the thing. No person, none of us, none of us is capable of ruling ourselves without God. Never mind ruling other people. We are not capable. I am not capable of ruling my own heart without God. This is why all rulers, the way God designed it from the beginning, was that all rulers would rule in submission to the king. Even back in the day, they used to take the word of God, and it said when a king was anointed, they would put the crown on his head, and then they would hold the scrolls over his head as a picture of saying, hey, buddy, don't forget, you're getting the throne, but you are still to serve beneath the word of God. You are subject to it. Boy, how far we've come. Now we have people in Congress praying the opening prayer to the God of what was it? I can't remember what that guy said. Um, unbelievable how far we've come. Amaziah says, down where you come from, God may be your king, but we got another system in place here. So go. We don't want you. We don't want the word of God. Unbelievable. This is a priest. I love the humility of Amos's reply. He's not trying to impress anyone with important titles or a lengthy resume. He simply says in verses 14 and 15, I was no prophet, nor was I son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder. Whoa, there's a bold admission. They were dirty people. They were considered low life back then. Amos doesn't care. He says, I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. How do you like them apples or figs, whatever? <laughs> he says, I'm nobody, man. You understand? I'm a dirty sheep farmer. I take care of fig trees. He says in verse 15, I love this. This can be true of your life. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. In other words, I was out busy doing what God had called me to do in life. I was being faithful right where he had planted me. It reminds me of Elisha. When God sent Elijah to call him, where did Elijah find him? Out in the fields, plowing the fields. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. His, his honesty is refreshing. Back then, just as today, God's work had become institutionalized. Religious titles and positions could be handed out to anybody. Not, this was not God's design, but man took God's system of priests and just uh, institutionalized it and started handing out titles to whoever, willy-nilly, whether they... Uh, deserved or earned that role or not, whether they've been called by God to that role or not. This is why I, I say so often, I get so weary of all these fancy titles in church. Oh, I'm the senior pastor. What? You're a lowly shepherd, dude. Get off your high horse. Senior pastor, head pastor, lead pastor. What? Come on, get down here in the mud with the rest of us. Amaziah may have been given the title of priest, but he didn't have the calling of God on his life. And therein is all the difference in the world. And I want to encourage you folks, wherever God has called you, wherever it is working in that office that you can't stand every day you walk in there with your jaw clenched and you think, oh, here I am again. Working as a a school teacher, a beautician, a, a, an accountant, a salesman, a president, whatever you are. Be faithful where God has called you and always be open as Amos was to go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what's that, Lord? Are you calling me to do something, Lord? Always be open. Be open. I've shared with you about when I was in the business world and God kept pursuing me, pursuing me, saying, you're not doing what I want you to do. 
And I'm like, yeah, but I'm terrified to do the thing you've told me to do. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And in time, God in his faithfulness and graciousness took me from there and put me here. And I'm still scared to death every week to do this. I'm still overwhelmed by this. But it's not necessarily that you're going to get a calling to be a pastor. Maybe God will call your heart to walk across the hallway one Monday and show love and kindness to that person in the cubicle over there who has driven you crazy. Or a single mom at work who's struggling and God puts on your heart to buy her a new set of tires for her minivan. Whatever it is, listen, wherever we are being faithful, always be attentive to the calls of God. Here stands humble Amos, a simple farmer. He may not have had the title or the king's stamp of approval, but he had God's call on his life. And he spoke with a power and authority that all of Amaziah's titles and connections could never give him. You know, I I love some of the statements that people made about Jesus behind his back. One of them that always rings like a rifle shot over my head when I hear this. It's so powerful. They said of Jesus, this man speaks with authority. Not like our teachers. Woo! He speaks with authority. I think of Samuel, the Bible says, not one of his words fell to the ground. Oh, I pray that will be true of me. I pray that even when you look at um, a guy who hates public speaking and is afraid to be up here, that you will not see me, that you will see the power of God. That God will set me aside, make me invisible, make me silent, whatever, so that only he can be seen. You walk at her scratching your head going, how can a doofus like Phil preach a powerful sermon like that? Like, it's not me. You understand? It's not me. All of us must be empty vessels for God. Say, God, fill me with you and then pour me out to bless and touch the lives of others. Amos is saying, man, I don't have all the formal training like you do, Amaziah. I don't have a degree hanging on my wall. I was just being faithful right where God had put me as a farmer. God stepped in one day and told me to come here and proclaim the truth. See, here's the interesting thing to me about this exchange. One of the interesting things. God had to call a farmer to do what the priest should have been doing. And I just put that in modern terminology. The church leadership was failing to do what God had called them to do. So God had to call somebody else to come and proclaim his word. That's heavy stuff, man. You see the responsibility when pastors step into the pulpit and speak into the lives of people, they better be giving them the whole gospel truth, not something that just makes them feel good and tickles their ears and gives them a boost for the week. There's a huge responsibility on their shoulders. I love Amos's humility, but I also love his boldness. He says... Um, Doesn't matter what you think, sir. Here's what God says. Look at verses 16 and 17. Boy, you talk about boldness. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I love that. It's like, I'm done talking. No point hearing from me anymore. Now you listen to the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Wow. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Oh, my goodness. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. 
There's so many lessons here. Um, I think it's important to note that God's opponent here isn't the atheist. It's a religious man. Same trouble Jesus had in his day. He never spoke a harsh word to an honest sinner. Not one. But boy, he blistered the religious leaders. Here, Amaziah, in the name of religion, bans the word of God from the sanctuary. And centuries later, the the high priest, in the name of religion, would silence the word of God and crucify him. I don't think any words ring more true here than Psalm 146, verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes. And from what Amaziah has shown us here, and many other examples in the Bible and throughout history, those princes can be princes of the church. It could be a pastor, a leader of a denomination, the president of a theological seminary. You can hold any one of those titles and still be as dead as a doornail in God's sight. How ironic all this is. The people and the leaders were so busy with religion that they didn't have time for the word of God. The irony there is just painful. And we need to guard ourselves against this too, church. It's very easy to be happy with God's word when I agree with it. It's very hard to be vulnerable to it, open to it, repentant in the face of it, especially when it cuts against the grain of our will. But man, you look at this and you think, what hope does a nation have in the face of God's coming judgment when religion takes precedence over God's word. They have no hope. And we'll see just how useless their religion is. We just, I'm just going to skim chapters 8 and 9 quickly. These last two chapters reveal more of the judgments that God is going to bring upon them. <clears throat> At the beginning of chapter 8, God compares his people to a basket of summer fruit. And the, it doesn't make much sense to us in English there, but... Uh, The Hebrew for summer fruit and the Hebrew for the end actually sound almost exactly the same. And so God is cleverly using a little play on words here to say to these people, hey, uh, you know what? Um, You look really good like a basket of fresh fruit. But just like that fruit, if it's left out, it spoils and it goes rotten and has to be thrown out. That's exactly what you are. You look good. You've got all the signs of health but you're rotten, and I'm going to have to throw you out. In verse 2 of chapter 8, it says, Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. Some Bibles translate that, The time is ripe. And that's not just a wild translation. It's They get it from that play on words in the Hebrew there. Summer fruit and the end. <clears throat> God says, That's where you are as my people. It's not that they didn't have religion. They had plenty of it. Their services were packed, but their religion had utterly failed to warn them properly of the coming judgment. They were still merrily singing their religious songs, all the while living in defiance of God. And God said in verse 3 of chapter 8, the songs of the temple, see they're still busy singing, the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day says the Lord God. Hey, what good is religion if it doesn't tell you the truth? And if it doesn't prepare you ahead of time for how to escape the coming judgment? This is why I'll say it again. I've told you before. Religion without God is more deadly than cancer. It's deadly. It makes people feel good about themselves now, all the while sending them to hell. Well, as you read through all these weighty judgments of God, it's, it's so interesting to see some of the little things that God is concerned about. Look at these quickly. Verse 4, hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fall. Verse 5, you say, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat? 
making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit. Verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell bad wheat. It's, it's interesting to me, even in all this calamity, God is still interested in defending the poor and the marginalized. He says, hey, my people, don't you dare take advantage of them. You make sure in your business dealings you're using honest scales. You understand? You don't put your thumb on the scale when you're weighing the guy's food to make it weigh a pound more. So you can get that little bit of extra profit. It's amazing. And all this big stuff going on, God is still concerned with the little things. You see, this transformation that has come into our lives if we're saved people is meant to affect every area of our life, big and small. Not just here on Sunday. How are you running your business? You doing it by the book? You doing it by the plumb line? God cares. He cares. God goes on to describe the people's sin, and boy, I tell you, they are truly horrific judgments. And we read this and just think, how can a loving God be the instigator of such horrific things? Here's why. Here's why we struggle with that. Because you and I take a casual approach to sin. We look at sin and go, it didn't hurt me last time I did this. Probably okay. God didn't see sin that way. God sees sin as something that must be judged with the most heinous judgment, proportionate to the evil that that sin itself brings about. We must never take a casual approach of sin. The Bible constantly reminds us that sin is far more serious to God than we want to admit. One of the consequences that these people would soon face, we see in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water. Listen to this. But a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Hey, I can't think of anything more terrifying than for God to completely remove his presence and his word from us. What a frightening thing that is. God says, you don't deserve to have this right now. I'm giving my pearls to swine. You're just trampling on my word, so I'm going to take it from you. Chapter 9 opens with this larger-than-life image of God standing by the altar, causing the thresholds of the buildings to shake. And God goes on to say, my judgment is coming, and no matter how far you try to run from me, you can run to hell, I'm going to reach down and grab you out of there. You can ascend to heaven, I'm going to pull you down from there. You can go to the top of the mountains, you can go to the bottom of the sea, you will never escape my judgment. And he goes on through chapter 9 describing what this coming judgment will look like. And it, it seems like this, this whole thing is so heavy and so dark. It seems like God's heart will never feel joy again, if I can just put it in human terms. You feel so, this sounds silly to say, but you feel so bad for God when you read this. It's like, man, all his children that he's raised up. And he says here at one point, I raised you up. When you were babies, I raised you up. You and your forefathers, I've been so good to you. And you read all this judgment that has to come, and it's almost like God is never going to be joyful again. But then we come to the last five verses of the book of Amos. And, and we once again see the merciful goodness of God. All that dark news that God has to dispense, it's like he can't help but conclude this by almost bursting into song. 
Because he wants us to never forget that while he is a God of judgment, listen, he is more than anything else a God of salvation. He's speaking here of the future time when Christ would come and establish the throne of David forever. But just listen to these closing words, verses 11 to 15, on that day. Now listen, this is against the backdrop of all this dark, heavy judgment. God lifts the veil a little bit and light shines through. God, he says, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. In other words, you're going to have so many crops to harvest. You're going to be so blessed, you won't be able to keep up with it. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. You understand, this is picturesque language to these people in that day, in that part of the world. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's quite ironic to me to read these verses that we've just read and think back on something that happened earlier all these things that these people had been frantically chasing after and striving for, the big houses, the pleasant vineyards. Back in Amos chapter 5, verse 11, God had said, because of your sin, you're never going to enjoy these things. You're never going to get to live in the houses. You're never going to get to drink the wine. Look at it quickly, Amos 5.11. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. But now, here at the end of the book, in Amos 9.14, God says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make great gardens and eat fruit from them. Hey, you want satisfaction? You want fulfillment that will last? You want security? You'll only find it in him. Only in him. It's frightening how much time and effort and energy we put into finding satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. Striving and toiling away like madmen. When all the while, God says, I have so many spiritual blessings I want to pour out on you. Things that will give you the satisfaction and the fulfillment you're looking for. But you're too busy building your own kingdom to ever enjoy the fullness of mine. I sometimes wonder how much of God's goodness we completely miss out on in this life. All because we're so focused on trying to find it in other ways. We're so frantically trying to stockpile things to bring us pleasure and security and joy that our hands are simply too full to receive the blessings God wants to give us. We look at all our stuff and go, hey, I'm blessed, man. And God says, you have no idea. I want to give you so much more fulfillment than any of these things can ever give you. But you're too busy. Your life's too full. You might read a book like Amos and conclude that God is nothing more than a God of judgment. But you would be wrong. Because once again, as we've seen over and over again in the Old Testament, the Bible shows us that God is a God of goodness and patience and forgiveness and mercy and grace and salvation. God expressed this fully through sending his son to the cross you look at the cross, and yes, you see the God who judges. But you also see the God who saves. They go hand in hand. Those arms stretched out to receive judgment are stretched out in welcome. So turn to him today if you never have, or if you're away from him. 
Here's your God, says Amos. He's a God of judgment. So what do you need to do? Repent. Here's your God, says Amos. He's a God of salvation. So what do you need to do? Repent. I've led you all the way through this book of Amos to tell you this one thing. Repent. Repent. This God of judgment is a good God. He's gracious and merciful and forgiving. Did you hear what I said? This God of judgment is a good God. He's gracious and loving and forgiving. So I pray that his goodness will lead you to salvation and cause you to run to him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for assuming in our naivety that if we ever see one bit of judgment from you, you can't be a loving God. That's just foolishness. Lord, I pray you would help us to see through this book and this simple exploration that we've done of it. I I pray you would help us to see afresh, or maybe for the first time, that the God of love and judgment is the same God, the God who loves us and sent his son to die for us, is the same God who will judge the nations. Lord, you're both, and we should be thankful for that because we know that all of the injustices and wrongs in this world will not just slip through time. You will settle the score. You will set things right. So, Lord, we just commit this teaching to you. I pray that you would write anything that has been said wrong. I pray you would drive home to our hearts what it is that you want to say to us to make us more like Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.